0: Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India, by Jonardin Ganeri and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Mostly Harmless, Nonviolence. Of all the academic disciplines taught and studied at university, Philosophy may be the one that is hardest to avoid in real life. You can decline to read literature, very few people ever get around to doing any physics or geology, and if you play your cards right, you can probably even get away without doing much math, though not if you actually play cards. Philosophy, though, is inevitable. We all wrestle with philosophical problems, even if we don't think of them that way. This is especially true when it comes to ethical dilemmas, One of the most obvious is the question of whether it is morally defensible to eat animals. Whether you are rich or poor, it is certainly possible to live as a vegetarian. So the decision to eat meat or abstain from it is one that faces everyone. If you do it, then it is either because you think there's nothing wrong with doing so, or because its wrongness doesn't weigh heavily enough with you to stop you from tucking into a nice juicy steak now and again. Even though the ethics of killing animals for food is a prominent example of philosophy in everyday life, it has only recently become a topic that is much debated among philosophers. Nowadays there are figures like the utilitarian Peter Singer, who is well known for his arguments in favor of vegetarianism. This contrasts sharply with ancient and medieval philosophy in Europe. Apart from a few exceptions, notably the late ancient thinkers Plutarch and Porphyry, Philosophers in those periods rarely bothered to argue at length for or against meat consumption. In ancient India, by contrast, nonviolence was one of the key themes of religious and philosophical culture. The Buddhists, and especially Jainas, defined themselves by their reluctance or refusal to eat meat. Animal sacrifice was, of course, central to the Vedic culture that the Buddhists and Jainas sought to criticize. Yet the texts that grew out of that culture, often encourage us to avoid harming animals. Nor is this a matter of purely historical interest. Still today, one of the most famous aspects of Indian society is widespread vegetarianism. So, this topic really gives us something to sink our teeth into. The first point that needs to be made, though, is that the topic is actually not vegetarianism. What we really need to discuss is what the traditions refer to as ahimsa, Meaning non violence or non injury. While it may seem that avoiding violence implies vegetarianism, this was denied in some Vedic texts, which claimed that sacrifice of animals could be consistent with ahimsa. Conversely, those who did think that non violence implied a vegetarian diet never thought it meant this and nothing more. Ahimsa obviously includes avoiding violence towards humans, too, and as we'll see, Jainas believe that one can inflict himsa on plants, and even commit acts of violence by lighting a fire or drinking water straight from a well. The wide implications of ahimsa are matched by the breadth of its acceptance in ancient India. It is especially prominent in the dissident traditions of Buddhism and Jainism, yet exhortations to avoid violence can also be found in Hindu texts like the Laws of Manu and even in the Mahabharata despite the fact that its most famous section, the Bhagavad Gita, consists of a dialogue recommending participation in war. Despite its evident philosophical interest, the idea of ahimsa has more often been discussed by historians of religion than historians of philosophy. It is a matter of controversy how and why ancient Indians began to think in terms of ahimsa, but scholars have most often explained it by alluding to religious practices – its origins may lie in the fear that ritualized violence could lead to retribution. This could then have led to ritual taboos and practices designed to deflect the blame for violence away from the sacrificer engaged in the ritual. For instance, one might recite a formula to secure expiation for slaying an animal, or place a blade of dry grass between an axe and a tree being chopped down to make a post for the sacrifice. Notice that in this second case, it is a plant and not an animal that is seen as the potentially injured party. On this reckoning, the doctrine of Ahimsa did not first emerge as a critique of Brahminical culture, with Buddhists and Jainas accusing the priests of violence. Rather, those accusations from the outside were preceded by an anxiety or embarrassment about sacrificial violence from within the Vedic tradition. A related controversy, which bears on the very relevance of ahimsa for us philosophers, is whether non-violence was pursued for moral as well as religious reasons. If the concern is really to avoid retribution, then eschewing violence may seem unrelated to moral concerns. The sacrificer is worried about himself, not the interests of the animal he is killing. As the laws of Manu explains, with what sounds like a tone of wistful regret, We can't eat meat without injuring the living, and doing this hinders us from a blessed afterlife, so we have to do without meat. On the other hand, a fear of vengeance implies that the animal or plant being harmed does have interests of its own, the ones that the sacrificer is in danger of violating. Besides, ahimsa was not only justified in terms of pure self-interest. One Buddhist work contains the following reflection, which is strikingly reminiscent of the biblical golden rule. Since I want to live, it would not be agreeable and pleasant to me if somebody were to take my life. For another person, too, it would be disagreeable and unpleasant if I were to take his life, since he wants to live. Precisely that which is disagreeable and unpleasant to me is disagreeable and unpleasant also to the other. How, then, could I inflict upon the other that which I find disagreeable and unpleasant to myself?" And we can find similar ideas in Hindu texts, including the Mahabharata. But more than Buddhism or Hinduism, it was Jainism that was characterized by an unswerving devotion to ahimsa. Indeed, Jainism has been called a religion of nonviolence. If you know only a little about Jaina beliefs and practices, then what you know probably concerns the extreme measures taken to avoid harming other creatures. Jaina monks wearing masks to avoid inhaling insects and gently sweeping the ground in front of them as they walk to avoid treading on any unseen life forms. Jainism takes its name from the honorific Jina, or conqueror, bestowed upon Mahavira. A contemporary of the Buddha, Mahavira is often called the founder of Jainism, but this is incorrect, at least according to the belief of the Jainas themselves. Rather, he was the last in the line of the 24 so-called Ford-makers, whose name refers to their role of providing a Ford, or way out, of the unending flow of reincarnation. The Jainas see Mahavira and his predecessors as divine saviors. All of the Ford-makers taught the same lessons about how we escape the cycle of rebirth. We saw briefly in episode 6 that the Jainas believed this could be achieved only through the total elimination of karma. Even good karma has the effect of tying you to rebirth, though such karma at least helps you secure a relatively favorable rebirth. The Jaina teaching on karma presupposes a dualist understanding of the human person, according to which the soul is an immaterial entity that enters into a relation with the physical world, and in particular, a series of individual bodies. Karma, too, is described as if it were a physical substance. It is compared to dust, which gets stuck to the soul more easily when we give in to passion or bad intention. The Jaina texts nicely express this by calling passion kashaya, which literally means glue or resin. And of course, according to the Jainas, it isn't only barbecue ribs that will make you sticky. The consumption of any meat builds up bad karma, since it inevitably involves the death of another being that desires to live. But for the Jainas, asceticism is more than observing ahimsa, and observing ahimsa is more than abstaining from meat. It has been remarked that Jainism is the most ascetic among the world's organized religions today, if not in world history. Renouncers and laypersons alike look to the example of the Ford makers and especially Mahavira, whose self-restraint reached superhuman levels. Never mind eating meat, he and the other Ford makers are said to have gone for weeks or even a year at a time without eating anything at all. Through extreme practices, the Jaina ascetic can divest him or herself of all karma and attain the status of a kevalin, meaning someone who is alone, that is, without the accretion of karma. The notorious practice of Salikana, in which a renouncer adopts total immobility until he succumbs to death through thirst, exposure, and hunger, has been criticized as a form of religiously inspired suicide. But the Jainas are firm in insisting that those who take this path do not desire death. According to legend, that would include Chandragupta, the king who founded the Mauryan dynasty and the grandfather of Ashoka. Rather, they are simply trying to avoid the acquisition of new karma that could compromise their hard-won status as a kevalin and doom them to yet another rebirth. As for the requirements of Ahimsa, vegetarianism is only the beginning. A delightful story from the Jaina tradition brings home what might be expected of the perfectly non-violent renouncer. One day, a forest fire erupted in a wood, and all the animals gathered around a lake to avoid the flames. They were packed together tightly, rubbing shoulder to shoulder in the limited space. An elephant lifted its foot briefly, and just then, a rabbit darted to the spot on which it had been standing. Rather than putting its foot down and crushing the rabbit, the elephant stood with its foot held aloft for three days before finally collapsing and dying from fatigue. The happy end to the tale is that the elephant is reborn as a human, and later reincarnated as an associate of Mahavira himself. Now, you might argue that in their pursuit of absolute non-violence, the Jainas likewise don't have a leg to stand on. You cannot get through life without ever harming a living thing. After all, we need to eat, and plants too are alive. As a leading scholar of Jainism, the aptly named Padmanabh Jaini, has written, The desire for food is the prime cause for all forms of himsa, since food cannot be consumed without destroying another life form. So far from denying this, the Jainas avoid consuming many types of fruits and vegetables, such as those they believe to be aggregates of a large number of life forms. The dietary restrictions extend even to water, which should be drunk by a Jaina ascetic only when it is strained or has been boiled, so as to remove small life forms. But even with these measures, avoiding all violence is still going to be impossible for the Jaina renouncer, at least without assistance. Fortunately, help is at hand in the shape of the Jaina layperson. As in Buddhism, the Jaina monastic lifestyle is facilitated by the support of other followers, who content themselves with living in accordance with less rigorous precepts. It's thanks to the lay community that the Jaina renouncers don't die of thirst and hunger. A renouncer who believes that he may only drink boiled water to avoid consuming small life forms has a problem. He is also forbidden to handle fire, since that would also obviously result in the death of such life forms who might get caught up in the flames. So instead, he takes water that has already been boiled by the layperson. Similarly, monks subsist on alms of food donated by lay people. Similar practices are followed in the Buddhist community. Is this really a coherent way of handling the ethical dilemma? Consider the following analogy. Suppose I need a lot of money in a hurry, and the only way I can think to get it is by robbing my rich uncle. But there's a catch, my moral scruples forbid me to do so. So, I resort to the expedient of getting my less fastidious friend to rob my uncle's house and splitting the cash with him. I may not have committed the robbery myself, but surely I would be morally culpable. In the same way, it would seem the Jaina renouncer must shoulder the burden of himsa inflicted in the preparation of any food or water he consumes, even if he didn't do the preparing himself. But let's not leap to conclusions, because there's more to the Jaina story. The renouncer is only allowed to take food and drink that was prepared without him in mind, and he will verify that this is the case before accepting it. In other words, the renouncer should live on leftovers, food and drink that just happen to be available and on offer from the laypersons. So to go back to our analogy, what the renouncer is doing is more like taking a charitable donation from a thief after ensuring to his satisfaction that the money was not stolen for his sake. A critic of Jaina renunciation will probably not be satisfied. If you knowingly benefit from a morally dubious act, doesn't that by itself put you in a morally dubious situation? One possible response would be to invoke another aspect of the Jaina understanding of non-violence, which is the centrality of intention. We said before that it is passion, desire, or intention that causes karma to stick to the soul. By religiously avoiding violence himself, and by eating only food that was not intended for him, the renouncer avoids intending violence, and nor does he benefit from an intention to do violence on his behalf. He is, quite literally, an innocent bystander. The same point will apply in a case like unintentionally killing an insect or plant by stepping on it. A renouncer's conscience in such a circumstance is clean, but only so long as he has taken every precaution to avoid its occurrence. Good examples of such precautions, apart from the ones we've already mentioned, are the practice of avoiding travel during the rainy season, when more vegetation and life forms are in harm's way, and refusing to eat at night. Before electricity, eating after sundown ran a significantly greater risk of incidentally consuming a bug. In fact, when you put it that way, maybe no one should eat after dark. The importance of intention to the Jaina Code is shown by the story of Yashodara, He is a king who has caused blood to be shed in war, but death was never his goal, so he has remained pure. Then, for complicated reasons, he decides to perform an animal sacrifice. To avoid killing a real living thing, he has a fake rooster made up out of flour, which by the way is a practice also recorded in other texts. Even though no real rooster is slain, the Jaina storyteller cries foul we are told how King Yashodara is elaborately punished in the afterlife simply because his intention was violent. Notice too how the narrative implies that a Jaina king could pursue military aims. Similarly, Jaina laypersons have frequently served as soldiers. It has even been proposed that the heroic ethic of Jaina asceticism was seen as continuous with the warrior heroism celebrated in texts like the great Hindu epics. Having said that only Jaina laypersons will engage in warfare, the way of the Jaina renouncer would be to die rather than do violence. How does the Jaina understanding of nonviolence stack up against modern day ideas about violence? It's easy to see a contrast with the utilitarian approach, which tries to minimize the amount of harm and suffering in the world, including the harm and suffering inflicted on animals. The Jainas do have a tradition of trying to persuade others to adopt nonviolent ways, but the ancient Jaina approach to Ahimsa seems to be directed towards a different, more individualist goal. The idea is not simply to reduce the overall amount of violence against animals, though that result is certainly going to be achieved too. Rather, the Jaina, whether layperson or monk, wants to avoid being personally implicated in any act of violence. It's sometimes been complained that the Jaina renouncer is actually inflicting violence on himself, so severe is his ascetic practice. So it's ironic that, from a utilitarian point of view, the renouncer may seem to be concentrating only on his own self-interest. For this reason, the radical renouncer needn't worry that his lifestyle depends on a degree of himsa being committed by lay believers. Like other ancient ethical traditions within and beyond India, Jainism was about shaping and perfecting the self. The renouncer will leave the world a better place than he found it, but the main thing is to leave the world, and not come back, by purifying his soul and becoming a karma-free kevalin. The Jaina teaching was also challenged by the rival belief systems of its own time and place. The Buddhists complained that Jaina asceticism was excessive. Remember that the Buddha himself began his spiritual quest by engaging in Mahavira-like discipline and self-denial, including a starvation diet. But he came to adopt a less punishing middle way between the extreme ascetic and the plush life of the householder. We are also told that he parted ways with a follower named Devadatta, who wanted the Buddhist community to adopt more rigorous practices, including strict vegetarianism. Instead, the Buddhist writings suggest that meat might be allowed for the Buddhist monk on the same basis used by the Jainas for their vegetarian diet. Consumption is licit, provided the meat was not actually prepared with the monk in mind. It may even be that this rule was absorbed into Buddhism from Jaina practices. Hindu authors could also exploit the idea of intention to legitimate that most un-Jaina of practices, the animal sacrifice. The laws of Manu say that slaying animals in a ritual context is in fact ahimsa and does not count as real killing. As the Bhagavad Gita suggests, sacrifice is needed to hold the world together. This was also the basis on which Arjuna was encouraged to go into battle, so long as the fight would be undertaken with Krishna in mind and not the intention of achieving any result for himself. The upshot is that there was a shared philosophical rationale for ahimsa across these ancient traditions, despite the wide variation in the practices deemed consistent with nonviolence. Given the competition between the rival groups, more emphasis was inevitably placed on the disagreement than on the agreement. For centuries to come, the Hindus will sneer at the squalid lifestyle of the dissident sects. Buddhists will snipe at Jainas for their absurdly excessive self-punishment, and Jainas will proudly claim to be the only ones who really take non-violence seriously. One Jaina text mocks the Buddhist's willingness to eat animals that died of old age. This, the author remarks, is like seducing a widow after her husband has died. The underlying desires are the same as those of a man who would slaughter an animal to get meat or murder a husband to steal his wife. Disagreements over the demands of Ahimsa and asceticism even erupted within the Jaina community itself. Early on, the religion split into two branches, called the Śvetāmbara and Digambara, meaning, respectively, white-clad and sky-clad. This refers to the white clothing of the Śvetāmbara and the nudity of the Digambaras, which is another form of rigorous asceticism. The Digambaras' stringent interpretation of Jaina principles also emerged in disputes about diet. They insisted that a perfect Kevalin, like Mahavira and any other renouncer who has attained liberation, would no longer need to eat at all, thus freeing them from even indirect contact with Himsa. The Shvetambaras, by contrast, endorsed the more common sense view that the need for food, Unlike the need for sex or material comfort, is an inevitable, if regrettable, part of embodied life. A common question posed about the traditions we've been examining throughout these early podcasts is whether they are really philosophical or rather religious. You may have noticed that along the way we've occasionally distinguished the philosophical and religious aspects of the texts, but the issue of nonviolence shows that the line is at best a blurry one. The concept of ahimsa may seem simple, it boils down to doing no harm. Yet it has taken the form of both a religious taboo and an ethical precept, and its interpretation has been advanced through a wide variety of means, ranging from doctrinaire assertion, to subtle debate, to crude insult. That's a feature of Indian intellectual life that is going to stay with us as we go forward, especially the bit about subtle debate, though we'll also be seeing the occasional crude insult. Nothing typifies philosophy in our next period, which we're calling the Age of the Sutra, so much as disagreement and debate, both between rival schools and within single schools. Traditions will split apart, as did the Jainas. The highly disputatious context will lead to new reflections on argumentative method, and some groups, including the Jainas, will be led to question whether any viewpoint is really better off than its rival's. But, even if you avoid all other forms of violence, you still have a bit of time to kill before we turn to the age of the sutras. Because first, we want to call attention to a feature of ancient Indian thought that is far less celebrated than its pacifism, the participation of women in philosophy. This may have struck you already, with the women we saw appearing as interlocutors in the Upanishads, but there is far more to say about the subject, as we'll be seeing next time on The History of Philosophy in India, And by the way, no animals were harmed in the making of this podcast.